Good afternoon. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to look at some verses out of Genesis 2 and 3. Okay, um, right, let me pray for us first, and then let's pray together for silence. And, uh, And then we'll maybe God answer our prayer so we can go on. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together. We thank you that we can worship you. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that um, you are working in our lives uh, in all, always in all circumstances. Uh, be here with us. Speak to us your word. Uh, you know um, our needs and um, where we are. Where we where we are, uh, so meet us with your word and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, an God answered our prayers. Even listens to the desire of our hearts. Okay, so um, the title of the sermon is The Redemption of Shame. The Redemption of Shame. Um, so, so we looked at John chapter 4 in recent weeks, and we saw the story of the woman at the well, um, the Samaritan woman who went to draw water at noon, presumably to avoid other people. Um, she had five husbands in her past and was currently living with a man who was not her husband when she met and encountered Jesus. And uh, she had a lot to be ashamed about in her life. Um, you can imagine people probably would have seen her a certain way because of her past, probably gossiped about her, and she probably wasn't even uh, proud of herself considering her past. But in that messy life situation, she met Jesus, who gave her living water, and she changed. And we, the way that we know that she changed, previously she avoided people. And then after she encountered Jesus, at the end of the story, she went to people. It seemed like she wasn't ashamed of her story anymore because Jesus rewrote her story. Jesus wrote a new story in her life with his grace and reversed her shame. And... Um, that passage prompted me to think about this topic of shame because that's something that every sinner can relate to. So, so that's what we want to do today, talk about the, the topic of shame, the sermon titled, The Redemption of Shame. First, what is shame? What is shame? What do you do when you're looking up a definition? You, you Google it. This is Google's definition. It says, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Right? Um, a painful feeling, so it's a feeling, a feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. This is Webster's, now this is Webster's definition. 
a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. So both definitions have the same idea. Shame, they're saying shame is what we feel. Painful, one said painful feeling, the other said painful emotion. So shame is what we feel when we're aware, right? both use the word consciousness, when we're aware of our guilt or wrongdoing. Right? So, so I did something wrong, and whether it's just me, I know it, or others know it, or God knows it, I did something wrong, and as a result of that wrong, I feel shame. This, this, this embarrassment, painful feeling that I can't shake. It's shame. Um, I came across these, I guess, now this is a further definition. I came across it on a random blog that I found online, uh, written by someone, I should have gotten the name, I don't, I don't know now who it was, found it online, and, and it said this, a Christian, uh, blogger, she says, guilt is a fact, uh, a guilt, now I was talking about guilt, before she talks about shame, she talks about guilt, guilt is a fact or something, no, I'm sorry, guilt is a fact or a statement of wrongdoing, guilt implies one has committed an offense, violated a law, or are convicted of doing wrong, guilt may include feelings of remorse for having acted incorrectly, sort of a heartfelt wish you had done something different. Guilt tempts us to shift blame, right? So um, I'm responsible for this, like for something that I did. I don't want to be responsible, so we, we tend to shift blame. Guilt requires payment, restitution. Okay, so a guilt is something objective, like something I did wrong, committed an offense, violated a law. Shame, however, she goes on, is a painful feeling of being dirty, tainted, humiliated, somehow less worthy because of your guilt. Shame is that feeling of being exposed, really seen with all the wrongness clinging to you. It carries a sense of being dishonorable, unacceptable, disgraceful, foolish, unlovable, and unworthy. And then now she addresses um, how to deal with guilt and shame. To the heart burdened with guilt, the promise of absolution, justification, and restoration to a state of declared innocence is the ointment that comforts. But to the heart that's burdened with shame, the promise of his cleansing, his love, his unconditional acceptance is the balm that heals. God in scripture addresses both needs. So I was thinking about shame, the, these definitions and the dynamics of how that works in the human heart, and I thought of uh, Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. You probably read it in high school. Hester Prynne, right? So in the story, she committed adultery, so she's made to wear the Scarlet Letter. The letter was intended to cause her to feel shame for her offense. Because you did this, because you committed this, you must feel shame. And the people wanted to punish her for what she did. They wanted to always put her sin before her and put her to shame. 
This is what you did, so this is who you are. Shame on you. And that's the destructive power of shame in this world. Whether we're uh, trapped in it by ourselves or other people make us to feel that shame. That's the destructive power of shame in this world apart from the grace of God. Shame. Okay, secondly, the origin of shame. Origin of shame. We go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. This is before the fall. God brings man and uh, woman together. Two will be united with one flesh. And then it says, Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the purpose of this verse isn't to just give us the information and to tell us that they didn't wear clothes. Um, that they were naked and that they were not ashamed. They're not just two separate pieces of information. Together, they're telling us the state of being before the fall. In the beginning, before sin entered the world, the first man and woman experienced perfect love, total security, there was nothing to hide. So, they were both naked and were not ashamed was the state of being. They were not ashamed because there was no sin. There was nothing to be ashamed of. That was the state of being before the fall. And then sin entered the world. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I mean, it's kind of strange. Like, more I th thought about it, like, it's strange to think that they didn't know that they were naked. But before sin, they didn't know that they were naked. Maybe it's like a newborn baby, right? A newborn baby doesn't know that they're naked. That being naked was just all they knew. So they're naked and they're not aware of it. Then sin enters and it says their eyes were open. Now they become aware of their nakedness. And they cover themselves because they're ashamed. The next verse, 3.8, uh, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So first they covered themselves with fig leaves, and then now they hide from God. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The eyes of both were opened. So now that means that sin changed how they saw. With their opened eyes, right? sin changed how they saw. Sin changed how they saw themselves. Instead of love and humility, now there's pride in man's heart. Now man saw himself as being supremely important. I esteem myself. I love myself. I protect myself. Sin changed how they saw themselves. Sin changed how they saw each other. Now, I don't serve you. Rather, now I use you to serve myself. 
because I am more important than you are. So instead of seeing each other with eyes of love, now they're seeing each other with eyes of judgment. Sin also changed how they saw God. Now they're guilty of sin. So instead of seeing God as a source of security, now they want to avoid His holiness. So now all these things that the opened eyes through sin now has changed how they saw, now all these things contribute to their shame. Before God, I am guilty of sin. And now shame is the proper response of the guilty one who stands before the righteous God. For example, we see this in Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. That, oh my God, I am ashamed. Why? The rest of the verse says, for our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Now I'm guilty. I know that I'm guilty. So I'm ashamed. So before God, I'm guilty of sin. So I feel shame before the holy and righteous God. Before each other, there's also shame because love is replaced by judgment. The other person who used to make me feel secure with their love now makes me feel ashamed with their judgment. So they feel the need to cover their nakedness before each other. And then even before themselves. Now I am supremely important to myself, but I'm a failure. I can't even escape the guilt even in my own eyes. Even when I'm alone, I'm still guilty. And that's why private shame is just as real and just as disruptive as public shame. So how did they handle their shame? Sinful man's go-to method of trying to handle shame is to cover or to hide. That's what they did. First, they covered themselves with fig leaves and then they hide from God. I have this thing that's shameful. There's no way to get rid of it. But if we cover or hide, then we can at least pretend it's not there. The best we can do to address shame is to make it so that, so that you can't see it. And this explains why the Samaritan woman went to the well at noon. If you can't see me, then at least it'll lessen the shame I feel. And like we said, we all have what the Samaritan woman had. Right? Because we're all sinners before God. We're all guilty of sin. And along with guilt comes shame. We all probably know that we are a worse sinner than we're letting on to others. We all have things to be ashamed about. So we cover our shame with different things. Right? I mean, it could be different things. Like It could be like nice clothes, impressive life achievements, or, or good deeds. We put our best foot forward trying to get others to see our external resume. Because if you can't see it, if you can at least pretend it's not there, then it'll minimize the shame I have to feel. The origin of shame. Thirdly, next, the distortion of shame. Distortion of shame. 
Okay, so everyone has reasons to feel shame because every human being is a sinner. But we all feel shame to different degrees because shame can be affected by many things. Right? So for example, the awareness or the lack of awareness of sin affects shame. Right? Different personalities, the family culture that we grew up in, societal culture, and so on. All of these affect the degree of shame that we feel. So, so that the, the shame that we feel is a, is a very fluid thing. Sometimes we don't feel ashamed when we should feel ashamed. Sometimes we feel ashamed when we shouldn't feel ashamed. For example, if I have a sharp tongue, right? Like um, a tongue that hurts people. If I have a sharp tongue, and I habitually go around hurting people, I should be ashamed of that. To be ashamed of that negative character trait is the proper response. If I'm not ashamed, then that's because of my pride. I'm not aware of my sin. So there's a healthy shame before God's righteousness that should lead me to repentance. But now, the opposite example is true too. If I feel ashamed because I'm wearing plain clothes while everyone around me is wearing expensive clothes, that's just my pride again making me feel ashamed. I should not feel ashamed in that situation. So there's healthy shame and unnecessary shame. Too often we feel ashamed unnecessarily because of the unreasonable standards that society puts on us or we put on ourselves. And sometimes we don't feel ashamed in our sin because we fail to see the righteousness of God. The distortion of shame. Next, I think this is fourth, culture and shame. Culture and shame. Now, as we mentioned already, the culture that surrounds us affects our experience of shame. Like, like what I feel ashamed about and things like that is affected many times uh, by the culture around us, whether it's our family culture or the broader culture around us. For example, um, I was thinking about this, like men wore shorts, um, short shorts. Men wore short shorts back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I have pictures with short, pretty short shorts on as a teenager. Okay? Um, and then men's shorts became longer. So that's how I wore my basketball shorts since the 90s. Okay? Um, at, like, I, at that point, like 90s on, I would have been embarrassed if my shorts stopped above my knees. So all my shorts, even now, come down and cover my knees. But then, in recent years, again, men's shorts have been getting short again. Right? So my boys' shorts are all above their knees. And not only are they above their knees, they like to roll up their waist even more so that it rises up even higher. So I tell them, can you please dress modestly? But they have no shame when it comes to short shorts like I have shame. Because that's the style. 
That's the influence of our surrounding culture. So clearly our culture shapes what we do or don't feel ashamed about. Now that same kind of dynamic influence can apply to our family culture. We all grew up a certain way in our childhood. Some grew up in a family where if something went wrong, it was your fault. And some grew up in a family that reinforced maybe like self-worth. So our background affects our view of self. For some people, and people are different like this, for some people, if you see me negatively, it's my fault, right? I'm not lovable. How can anyone love me? For others, if you see me negatively, that's your fault, right? I am lovable. Why wouldn't you love me? So where I fall in that spectrum in my view of self will obviously affect the shame I feel or don't feel. So our background matters. Now, just kind of as a side note here, let me also add this thought. From what I just described about family background and things like that, you might think that a high view of self, someone who has a high view of self is better than someone who has a low view of self. But that's not necessarily true because a high view of self person, like a high view of self is different from a healthy view of self. If you've, if you've always been taught to accept, your, accept yourself for who you are, you've always been reinforced with, you know, like you're great um, and, and reinforced with that kind of view, that's not necessarily always good because that person who has a high view of self it's not my problem, your problem, it's your problem. <laughs> that person might be less aware, less self-aware of their guilt before God and before others, generally. And that's not necessarily good. We all know it's not fun to live with a roommate who has a high view of self because if you know, like something goes wrong, it's always the other person's fault. Right? So culture definitely affects the experience of shame. Next, fifthly, I think, guilt versus shame. Guilt versus shame. Um, now, kind of adding this to, to the, the culture and shame kind of thought, but we commonly hear about the difference of the East versus West cultures when it comes to shame. The Eastern honor shame culture versus the Western righteousness, guilt, culture. The Eastern culture tends to be more uh, communal. The Western culture is more individualistic. And many people in our church have their ethnic roots in the Far East, right? Uh, maybe many of our church members, like your parents or your grandparents, were raised in Korea or China or somewhere else in the Far East but you grew up in the West. And as people growing up in the Western culture with Eastern parents, the younger generations, uh, they tend to notice the difference in culture and often look down on the parent culture on certain things. You must get straight A's. If you get a B, you'll bring shame to our family. And you feel like Mulan. Right? Like you're trapped in the shame culture 
that you're not 100% bought into. Um, but before you judge that culture, that's not necessarily your culture, it might be helpful to realize why this difference exists. A friend of mine who lives currently in the Middle East, uh, Middle East is you know, similar to the Eastern culture than the Western culture, lives currently in the Middle East. He shared this story with me from his personal experience. He said a friend came knocking on his door at 11 p.m. Kids were already asleep. He and his wife were already in their pajamas, tired, was just about to go to bed, but the friend came knocking. If he opens the door, the visit will last at least two hours. Um, they would have to prepare and serve some food, some drink. So he decided he wasn't going to host his friend that night. Now, he had two options to handle that situation. One, don't open the door. Pretend no one's home or pretend that you're already sleeping. Two, open the door, but not let him in. Just try to cut the visit short at the door. He chose option two because he's an American. And that's how we do it in the West. An American would open the door because we think pretending you're not home is deceiving and dishonest. I don't want to be guilty of being deceiving and dishonest. That's basically lying. So just open the door and tell the truth. This isn't a good time. So that's what he did. He opened the door, did not invite his friend in to care the exchange at the door, and then sent him away. He said he found out later that what he did confused and deeply hurt his friend. Deeply hurt his friend. Because in that Middle Eastern culture, where hospitality is so valued, to actually open the door and not let him in was like a slap in the face. It's like, I'm treating you like my enemy. He said he learned later that the way they handle that kind of situation in that culture is you just don't open the door. And if you don't open the door, then the guest um, just understands and realizes that this is a good time. And I heard that story and I thought that was fascinating. It's a lesson on how things are valued differently in different cultures. An American from this individualistic culture who values doing what he thinks is right opens the door because to not open the door is deception and lying. But to the Middle Easterner who values community, he keeps the door closed because to them, that's not even deception. That's saving your friend from feeling shame. In the West, the individual is priority. Um, guilt is priority. Like the avoidance of guilt is priority. You just worry about yourself and avoid being guilty of lying. In the East, the community is priority. Um, the avoidance of shame is priority. You bear the guilt, like in the sense you bear the guilt of deceiving yourself to avoid giving shame on your friend. 
So there's that difference, right? It's fascinating. But the more I thought about it, both cultures are really dealing with the same human problem. Because in a fallen world, you cannot avoid guilt and the resulting shame. Guilt and the corresponding shame exist in every society. So, should we place the priority on lessening guilt or should we prioritize lessening shame? It's the same human problem. But different cultures deal with the human problem differently. So, just saying this, as we think about, um, and sometimes we kind of like give negative view of, oh, the shame, honor, shame culture is like bad, you know, like, and we, we think of it like that. Uh, but it's, the, the problem exists because we live in a fallen world because we're all sinners. And different cultures value things differently because they're trying to um, do what is right or from the biblical perspective to honor God. Lastly, overcoming shame. Um, so I was thinking about this, right? So overcoming shame, the type of overcoming shame, like we often talk about how God addresses guilt, the guilt of our sins, right? But not as much about how God addresses the shame uh, in our hearts. The guilt part is easy, right? Like, even right after the fall, Genesis 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And so, so God already sets into motion this plan to address man's guilt. The seed of the woman is Jesus, the Savior, who will eventually come and bear the guilt of our sins on the cross. So God already set this plan in motion. To, to take care of our guilt. But we don't often talk about how God also addressed their shame. Soon after that, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. So God now covers their shame with, says, a garment of skins which implies that an animal had to be killed to cover their shame. And this again points forward to the sacrificial death of God's Son on the cross to cover our shame. So, in some sense, the, the, cover, the, the cross did cover our shame, right? The cross was to absolve our guilt, but also in some sense to cover our shame. But how did that actually happen? And I thought about this and and uh, like we sing songs about it, like I, their songs, lyrics, uh, you took my guilt and shame, you died for my guilt and shame. But then I couldn't think of a verse that explicitly talked about how Jesus took our shame. But um, I think we can think of it in this way. Isaiah 53, which is about Jesus, right? The suffering servant. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men. Okay, so um, as he came to do this atoning work for us, 
through his death on the cross, Jesus was despised. He was like ashamed, despised and rejected by men. And then Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So, so we know that there was great shame in the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, there was great shame before men, it was despised, rejected by men, and even greater shame before God. But the thing is, that was my shame. That should have been my shame because it was the shame that came with my sins. Jesus was on the cross to bear the guilt of my sins and also to suffer my shame. Now, because of what Jesus did, because of what he achieved on the cross, we can receive love from God. We can think of it in this way. There are two ways to not feel ashamed. Two ways. Be perfect or be perfectly accepted. Right? One way is be perfect. If you're perfect, then there's nothing to be ashamed of. But of course, that's not possible for anyone. The second way, if you're not perfect, then, then, then be perfectly accepted. We're not perfect by any means. But if, you, uh, if you're perfectly accepted, then the security of that love protects us from feeling ashamed. And this is what Jesus did for us. Jesus took our guilt and he took, suffered our shame on the cross so that now I can stand blameless before God. Not only blameless before God, but shameless before God as one who is perfectly accepted by God. That's why we have verses like this in the Bible. Psalm 17, verse 8 says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Adam and Eve hid from God to cover their shame. That's the only way they knew how to handle their shame. But God now, once and for all, takes care of man's shame problem by giving him a permanent solution. And that is through Jesus Christ, it says, hide not from God, but hide in God. Because only in Christ can we be perfectly accepted as if we had never sinned. So he says, come, take refuge and hide in my perfect love for you. Come to me through Jesus Christ where you are perfectly accepted by the only one that matters. So we can come to God to find grace, to find perfect security, perfect love, perfect acceptance. Um, let me add two more thoughts before we finish. Now in the in the, in the practical outworkings of uh, shame, a guilt and shame is a little different in the practical way that it works out and the way that we experience it in our lives. What I mean by that is, um, 
our guilt, our guilt can be erased in a moment, right? Like um, you're guilty of sin. We're forgiven of that guilt. The moment that you repent before God, uh, in an instant, we're forgiven of that guilt. But the shame that comes with that guilt tends to linger and it takes time to overcome that shame. Um, I love, uh, sometimes when I'm bored, I love watching those dog rescue videos. And I especially like the ones where the dog, I guess, had some traumatic experience in the past or something like that. And so in the beginning of the video, the dog is so scared that when the rescuer finds the dog, it's like trembling in the corner. Won't even look in the look in the direction of the rescuer. It's like sticking his face against the wall or in the corner or something like that, trembling. And whenever the person touches the dog, even slightly, the, the dog like pees himself. But the rescuer is patient, visits the dog several times a day, sometimes just sits with the dog, offers food, gently pets the dog, comforting him assuring him that he's safe now. And because the video is 15 minutes long, I go back, I go to like the last two minutes. Okay? And now the dog is like jumping up and down, right? He's playfully running around, wagging his tail, jumping on the rescuer in joyful excitement. That's a picture of the work that God is doing in each one of our lives in those areas of shame. Wounded by the guilt of sin, stricken, just stricken like by the lingering shame from that guilt. But he's patient with us. He wants to assure us of his perfect acceptance through Jesus Christ. So we can continue to look toward him and hide in the shelter of his wings. Um, one more thought along with that. Now the picture of, um, we have to realize, we have to realize that when we say that um, the Samaritan woman was not an exception, the Samaritan woman was not an exception. Right? She's not like the exceptional sinner in this world that the Bible is like putting up there for us to learn a lesson. The Samaritan woman is us. The Samaritan woman is you and me. Every single one of us have shame before God. Have shame before others. Um, so what that means is as every single person is dealing with their issues, that picture of the dog rescue story is the same thing that we can do for others when we choose to love. When someone sins against us and then we hold a grudge or you refuse to forgive, you're actually doing the opposite. We pronounce their guilt and we're actually inciting 
their shame on them. We're actually doing the opposite of what God wants to do in that person's life. But when we forgive, when we freely forgive, as Christ has forgiven us, when we forgive, we're participating in the same work that God is doing. Patiently, reassuring, comforting, inviting, providing security, acceptance, perfect love. We have opportunities to cover other people's shame through the grace and forgiveness we offer them. Let's pray together. It's just so amazing when we think about, like, when we just pause and think about the gospel message. Um, right, like Adam and Eve sin, um, are guilty of wrongdoing, uh, fluster, confused, don't know what to do, cover, hide, uh, at a loss, right? Um, but then God takes initiative, sets a redemption story in motion. And uh, the Bible tells us, I mean, we have verses like that in the Bible that says, as far as the east is from the west. Right? I mean, think about that. As far as the east is from the west. Like that's how far our sin has been removed from us because of his grace and his love for us. That's perfect love, perfect acceptance. And in that grace, that's the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, he uh, slowly but surely, patiently uh, dissolves our shame. Um, uh, let's rest in that, hide in the shelter, in the shadow of his wings. And, uh, with the comfort and strength and, and assurance that we receive from him, we can extend that to others. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the, the word of God that reveals your character and the amazing redemption story and how you redeem even our shame. Uh, strengthen us through your word and help us apply it into our hearts and to the uh, hearts of others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy for us. Uh, just, uh, and we pray that you would help us to realize that even more. Pray that the Spirit would help us in our hearts to realize deeply, uh, realistically, uh, how much you love us in Jesus Christ. Help us understand what it means uh, that the first man and woman uh, were not ashamed because of that perfect security and acceptance before sin and how you're redeeming our shame so that we can experience that perfect acceptance that can be found only in you. And may that uh, feeling of being loved by God be so addictive that we want to run to you and hide under your wings every day. 
Lord, make us into the vessels and agents of blessing and change uh, to the many Samaritan women around us. Help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, offering love, forgiveness, acceptance, covering their shame. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your love for us. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this unchanging covenant love of the Father God, the fellowship and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.